Today, we are continuing on in our series, Back to Basics. It's a series on doctrine and, and some of the f- uh, fundamental um, doctrines, if you will, or beliefs of our Christian faith. And I'm excited to share this morning. I'm a little anxious about it. It's a big one that we're tackling today, the doctrine of the Trinity. The message is titled, Invited to the Dance. And we'll talk about the dance a little bit more, but delighting in the Trinity. So if you will, I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. That is on page 977 uh, on the Bibles that are on your seats. And and as you're turning there, uh, a couple of things to note. One, if you do not own a Bible or you know someone who does not own a Bible and they need one, uh, consider this our gift to you or to them. It's our hope and prayer as a church that God would reveal himself uh, to you or to your friend uh, through his word. Uh, that you would experience the life-changing power of Jesus Christ in that way. Also, while you're turning there, I want to invite you to understand something about the text that we're going to look at today. And in a lot of the texts of the New Testament is that Ephesians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul. And and I don't know about you, but I grew up with this idea of letters being extremely personal. And and that they are, right? Like I used to get notes in high school. This is before texting. The kids will never get this now. But, um, right, like there was a note. It was passed. And every now and then the teacher would get it and read it aloud to the class. But we would, that was the most awkward thing ever. Um, But we would get these notes and and we'd read them and we would read them silently. And it was personal. It was intimate. And, And there's an element of that in letters that are written to the church in the New Testament. All right? However, it's also important to understand, though, that when, when Paul was writing, Paul was writing these letters to be read aloud corporately. They, they weren't meant to be individual. They were meant to be something that is shared corporately. And, and if we were to actually read this in Greek, we're not able to do that today. I'm certainly not able to do that. Uh, we would actually pick up on a lot of the beautiful syntax and nuance of his writing, the alliteration and, and all these sorts of things. Uh, we lose that in our English translation, but there's still something profoundly uh, inspiring and, and, and we can we could just kind of enter into the presence of God, I think, when we read corporately. So I want to invite you to do that with us today, or with me today. We're going to read just like we had the last couple of weeks. So I want to invite you to stand, uh, if you will. And this is a fairly long passage, uh, but we'll go through it together. And we're going to read this, and then we will dive in into what God is sharing with us this morning about uh, himself. So here we go, Ephesians chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And it says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. This is what he wanted to do And it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us who belong to his dear son. He is so rich in kindness and grace that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. He has showered his kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. In this type of plan, at the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. 
Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for He chose us in advance, and He makes everything work out according to His plan. God's purpose was that we Jews who were the first to trust in Christ would bring praise and glory to God. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so in praise and glorify him. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we read your word and we gather, uh, we would ask that you would give us uh, eyes to see, that you would give us ears to hear, that you would give us hearts and minds that are both open to knowing more about you but growing uh, in our knowing of you. Uh, Father God, we would just ask that uh, your blessing would be on us as a church, your church this morning, uh, as we strive to understand uh, who you are, who we are in relation to you, Lord, and how we are called uh, to both love you and love others. And we pray these things in your name. And all God's people said, amen. All right, you may be seated. All right, so here we go. We are diving into the Trinity this morning. And we're going to come back to this passage in Ephesians in a little bit as we look at the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But first, um, I have a few goals in mind, if you will, for this particular sermon. Uh, that we would, one, leave each and every one of us this morning with perhaps a little bit of a deeper understanding um, of the Trinity in comparison to when you walked in, regardless of where you find yourself this morning. So perhaps this is your first time here. Uh, maybe you've been coming to church for a long time, or, or you've been a follower of Christ for a long time, uh, or you've been a, a couple of weeks, whatever it may be. It's just my hope and prayer that we would leave just a, a little bit more in knowing uh, a little more about God and also knowing God a little bit more as we walk out the door today. Uh, the second thing is this, is that we as a church would actually understand why the Trinity matters and why it's important and how it's applicable, uh, applicable to our lives today. I think sometimes as a culture, things that are complex and difficult and, and mysterious, we can sometimes, we, we have this tendency to maybe put them up on a shelf and, and kind of leave them there. And, and it's important that we do not do this with the doctrine of the Trinity. It is at the very foundation, the very core of, of who we are as followers of Christ. So with that, let's dive in. In one of the most famous writings, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer starts off his book with this thought. It's in the very first page. He says, What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Now, pastors and theologians alike all across the world for a long time have been uh, paraphrasing and kind of reworking this quote, but there's something so profound about it. Uh, the most important thing you ever think when you think about God all right, like that's the most important thing. The most important thought you will ever think is what you think about when you think about God. But why? Why is that the most important thought? Right, have you ever thought about that? I'm saying thought a lot. This is like a Dr. Seuss book, all right? Because what you think about when you think about God determines every part of your existence, right? What you think about when you think about God determines every part of your existence, everything of who you are. So a question we need to ask ourselves this morning as we're starting off is, 
does what we think and believe about God actually line up with who he reveals himself to be through his word? Through the Son and through the Spirit? We have to ask that question. And a few weeks ago, Pastor Chris uh, started off his sermon with a, on worship with a question. What do you worship? I loved this. And he went on to explain that it's not a matter of if you worship, because we all worship something. It's a matter of what do you actually worship, right? Not if, but rather who or what. And, and so this morning, I want to ask a similar question along the same lines. What do you love? It's not a matter of if. It's a matter of who or what. The reason I pose this question to you today is this. Is when you love someone or something, doesn't it naturally create a desire within you to know more? Right? Like, isn't there something inside of you when you love something that just you are drawn to it and you want to understand it more fully? Right? It's Super Bowl Sunday, and there's a lot of us, we're, we're sad because our team's not playing. Uh, where most of us, our team's not playing. Um, but there's a lot of us, I bet you if I went through, we could talk about all the ridiculous statistics about the Patriots and Tom Brady and all these sorts of things. Why? Because we, we love that. We love them. Whole sermon in that, right? But, but we, we, we strive to understand something more because we're drawn to it. I think of it this way. When, when I met my beautiful wife, Katie, nearly 16 years ago, it's hard to believe it's been 16 years, I wanted to learn absolutely everything about her. We were young and we were in love and we did the silly thing that you see on, uh, in movies, like we were on the phone and we would fall asleep together, right? And, and we'd wait, like, this is so corny, right? But I'll, I'll, I'll own it. I'll be, I'll be real with you for a minute. I did that. We used to write each other love notes and letters and things like that, and I would stop by work with something for her, and she'd stop by where I was, and we would just do all these sorts of things, but all with this idea of like wanting to get to know each other. And here we are, 16 years later, right? And I still can't get enough of my wife, Katie, most of the time. <laughs> right? Like, there's, like, I'll be honest with you, like, I, I, I love everything about her, and the more I get to know her, the more I want to know most of the time. All right? But here's the thing. The reason I ask this is because what we love fuels our desire to know more. Our affections and our love for God should fuel our desire to not only know more about God, it should also fuel our desire to actually know God in a relational sort of way. But more than that, it should also create a desire within us to know God rightly and to understand who he actually is, not who we want him to be. Now, I believe uh, that that's one of the reasons it's so important for us to understand the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, there are a few misconceptions I think we need to kind of get out of the way right off the bat. Number one, doctrine and doxology are at odds. It's a huge misconception. Now, let me, let me under, explain this real quick so you, you see where I'm going. Doctrine comes from the Latin word doctrina, which literally means teaching or belief. So doctrine of the Trinity means teaching or beliefs about the Trinity. Make sense? Doxology comes from the Latin word doxa, which means glory, and logia, which means oral or written expression. Worship. Right? So oral or written glory to God. Doctrine, teaching about God. Worship of God. I think a lot of times we think are at odds. It's like one and the other. There are two parts to our service, right? We have our worship the first 20 minutes or so, and then we have a teaching, and then we close with worship. 
And, and we think like these things don't intertwine and interact with each other, but the reality is they very much do. They're not an either or, but rather they are a cyclical praxis. They are in the fabric of who we are. It's a practice of our lives. If you look at it this way, you'll see an image that comes up. Here we go. We have doctrine, the teaching, the belief, the knowledge about God, and we have doxology. It doesn't matter which one you start in, the other leads to the other, one leads to the other. Right? So the more you begin to know about God and who he is and grow in your relationship with him, the more your desire to worship God increases. And the more you worship God, what happens? Your desire to know more about him, and round and round we go. This is what it's like to be a disciple of God. Now, there may be seasons of life. Go back to the side for a second. There may be seasons of your life where you are a little heavier, maybe in doctrine, in the knowledge, the head, uh, if you will, of God, and you're learning there. Or there may be seasons of your life where you're focused more in the worship, but they both both fuel one another. They are not meant to be independent. That's why it's important that we take time to understand the doctrine of the Trinity, because as we do, I promise you, it will fuel your desire to actually worship God. So that's number one. Number two, a lot of times we believe the Trinity can be inaccessible. It's mysterious. It is absolutely difficult to understand at times, but it is at the very foundation, the very core of our belief in Jesus Christ. In some ways, I would suggest that it's beyond our ability to even comprehend fully. We're simply not God. However, that doesn't mean it's not accessible. God makes himself accessible to us. The doctrine of the Trinity is not inaccessible. And misconception number three is this. The doctrine of the Trinity is not polytheism. Polytheism, poly meaning multiple, theism God, so multiple gods. The doctrine of the Trinity is not multiple gods. Three distinct persons, one God. Christianity is and was and always will be a mono, one God, theistic religion, right? And, and so it's important that we understand that. St. Augustine of Hippo says this of the Trinity. Nowhere else is a mistake more dangerous or the search more laborious or the discovery more advantageous. Let's think about that for a second. Nowhere else, nowhere else, when we think about our, our doctrine, all of our beliefs about who God is and what he has done for us, nowhere else in that is a mistake in misunderstanding more dangerous. Nowhere else in all that understanding and seeking to understand a task more laborious, it is challenging, it's difficult, it's beyond in some ways our comprehension, but we're going to try anyway. But yet still a discovery more advantageous. That's beautiful. So with some of these misconceptions out of the way and with that picture in mind, let's talk about what the Trinity, in fact, is. I'm going to do my best in one sentence to summarize the essence of the doctrine of the Trinity. God eternally exists as one God in three distinct persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, yet there is only one God. Does that make sense? I get a lot of like, right? God eternally exists as one God. Three distinct persons though. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each of whom is fully God, yet there is only one God. All right, see you next week. Good luck. But Tim Keller in his book, and I want to share with you, um, I have a, a few quotes that we're going to put up on the screen today and that I'm referencing and the reason for that is there are a lot of great minds and thinkers who have dedicated their lives to the understanding of this. And, and they have put in so much work, and, and they are way smarter than I will ever, ever be. 
And, and so I'm just sharing with you some of the insights that I've gained from them in hopes that they'll help enlighten you a little bit as well. So in, in no way are these statements that these men are making, these theologians, these great minds making, in, in no way is that doctrine. It's an, it's an effort to help us understand doctrine. Does that make sense? Okay. So Tim Keller in his book, The Reasons for God, talks about the Trinity in this way. Each of the divine persons centers upon the others. None demands that the others revolve around him. Each voluntarily circles the other two, pouring love, delight, and adoration into them. Each person of the Trinity loves, adores, defers, and rejoices in the others. This creates a dynamic, pulsating dance of joy and love. The leaders of the early church, they had a word for this idea. They called it perichoresis. And translated, that literally means to flow or dance around. It's where we get the word choreography from. It's a dance. The interaction of the Trinity Father, Son, Holy Spirit is a dance of sorts, the way they interact. Right? When you see a great dance, you, you, you don't know who's leading, do you? Right? You ever watch Dancing with the Stars, anyone? I'm ashamed to say that I've turned it on for a time or two. Um, but sometimes you can see, like, clearly there is one that is leading the others. But the ones that do well, right? you, you can't tell. It's just fluid. It's beautiful. They're there to glorify the other, not themselves. And that's what makes it beautiful. And, and when we think about the Trinity in this way, it's a dance of sorts. God the Father exists to glorify the Son and the Spirit. God the Son exists to glorify the Father and the Spirit. The Spirit exists to glorify the Father and the Son. Right? It's, it's a complex, mysterious thought, but it is oh so beautiful. At the very core, the very nature of the Trini uh, Trinity, God in his very essence is relational and as such we too being created in his image are also at our very essence deep within our bones called to be relational also if we believe that we are created in his perfect image that means we are called to be a relational people and yet here we are in the middle of more so-called community than ever before in human history. Right? I have thousands of friends. In an instant, I can take out my phone and I can send a one-way message to thousands of people. Right? And I can scroll through my feed on Facebook and Instagram and all these things, and I can see what's going on in one another's lives. But yet loneliness is at an all-time high. Loneliness lack of true community is an epidemic. It's true. And we are simply not called to live that way. If we look at the doctrine of the Trinity as an indication of how we were created to live, man, what are we, what are we doing to ourselves? We are so disconnected. We cannot flourish apart from one another. It's not okay to just come and sit in the back row. I apologize if you're sitting in the back row. Yeah, to come sit in the back row and not talk to anyone and just go. Like, yeah, you'll start to know a little bit about God up here, but you're really not going to know him because we get to know him through each other. 
Right? Like that's how we grow. That's how we love. That's, that's how we get, begin to experience the love of God in a very real and tangible way. You cannot do it on your own. You will not flourish doing this on your own. There is no substitution for true gospel-centered community. That's why we make such a big deal about community groups. It's not just because we want to be able to... It's so important, vitally important. That's why at the, the center of the vital church report that came back to us back in the fall, this idea of koinonia is so prevalent. Right? Deep fellowship. It's not just lacking at community covenant church. I would argue it's lacking around the world. This is something that we never arrive at. It's something we're striving towards, and we will see it in completion upon the day of Christ Jesus. But that doesn't mean we stop striving. Right? We are created to live in community. All right, that was a little tangent, I'm sorry. Now, there are little, literally tons of illustrations to try and explain the Trinity, but they all fall short in some ways. We simply cannot comprehend fully because we are not God. Right? Created in his image, but we are not God. Some things are beyond our understanding, and that needs to be okay. But there's one illustration that I refer to a lot, and, and I think it may be helpful for you. Let's turn this just a touch. We have this image. Makes sense, right? We have God, and then we have the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father is God. God the Son is God. God the Holy Spirit is God. But the Father is not the Spirit. The Father is not the Son. The Son not the Father. The Son not the Spirit, and so forth, right? Makes sense? You guys with me? All right? It kind of, when you see it visually, it it helps you understand a little bit. But now I want to point to something here that I think is really critical for us to understand. When we see it laid out like this, it helps us understand the crucifixion in a whole new way. When Jesus Christ, with his arms spread wide, shouts out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What do you think he's talking about? God, at his very nature, broke. Right? This was no more. This was no longer connected in the way he was created. These three existed eternally as one God from the very beginning of time all the way through the end of time for the exception of three days. Friday, Saturday, and then they re- reunited, conquering death on Sunday. But when we see this and we understand what the Trinity is, understand how they relate to one another, when we think about the crucifixion, when we look to the cross, it gives us a glimpse of how much Christ, how much God, how much the Spirit actually loves us, is that they were willing to break. We literally broke God. And if that's not a convicting thought, that's not a humbling thought about God's grace. I don't know what is. So we have a picture of the Trinity. We know what it's not. We know somewhat what it is. But I want to take a few minutes. I want to talk about the three persons of the Trinity. I want to take a few minutes and go back to Ephesians 1 and talk about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 3 to 6. I'm going to read those first few verses one more time if that's okay with you. All praise be to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms because we are united with Christ. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. That is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure. So we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out and poured out lavishly 
upon us who belong to his dear son. We see in this passage that God the Father is the initiator. God the initiator. The initiator of all divine action. God, what does he do? He blesses. God initiates. He loves. He chooses. He decides. He adopts. He brings us unto himself. He pours out his grace uh, grace lavishly on us. God the Father initiates. And in doing so, um, he does this because of his reckless pursuit of us, in pursuit of a relationship with us. You are not the source of your salvation. We'd like to think we are. Culture tells us that we are. All we have to do is work harder, work smarter, try more, right? Be more efficient, get the new app, use the iPad Pro, whatever it may be. We think if we do all these things, that we'll somehow earn something, but yet that's not what it is. It is initiated by God the Father. We are not the source. We do not take the first step. Yes, we take a step in response, but it is in what? In response, meaning God takes the first step. He does that through his son, Jesus Christ. God the Father initiates. When we weren't looking because we were too busy trying, God invaded our world in the form of his son, Jesus Christ, stepped into our world, invaded our lives, and accomplishes something that we were never capable, capable or even possible of accomplishing on our own. God the Father initiates, but he does not accomplish our salvation. That's someone else's job. John 3.16, one of the most famous passages of all of scripture, for God so loved the world that he sent, right? That he sent, God initiates. But who did he send? Jesus. He sends Jesus. God the Father initiates by sending Jesus. And Jesus, God the Son, accomplishes what we could not. That's point two. God the Son accomplishes. He invades our broken lives, our broken world, establishes the kingdom of God here and now, which we will fully realize upon his second coming, accomplishes our salvation in that mist with his death and with his resurrection. That is good news. All right? It's not dependent on us. We didn't initiate it. We didn't accomplish it. So far, the story's not about us at all, is it? We may be the object of the story, but we are not the primary figures. It is God the Father and God the Son at this point. Colossians 1, 15 to 20 says this, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. Whew. We could spend all day right there. The visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything else was created in the supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. The Father initiates, but Christ, the Son, accomplishes. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead, so he is first in everything. For God, in all of his fullness, was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. Everything, everything, absolutely everything that God initiated was accomplished through Christ the Son. God the Son. 
Jesus is described in this passage as the visible image of the invisible God. Because he is, in fact, God himself. If you go back to that image, God the Son is God. In creation, we see that we, too, are created in the image of God. But that does not make us God. We are not God. Right? We are broken. Jesus is not. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection provides a lens in which we can gain access to all of who God is if we choose. So, so here's the thing. I can't speak for you, and I don't want to be so presumptuous as to. I can only speak for me, but if I'm, if I'm brutally honest with you for a moment, I often allow my brokenness and my guilt and my shame, my sin, my messiness, my failed relationships, in particular the relationship with my father, to, to infiltrate my view of God. I can't help but not. I love my father. He's been gone for 20 years now, 22 years. And I miss him dearly, and he loves me very much, but he, he was not a perfect father by any stretch. And at times, I'm sure many of you can maybe probably look back to your father or to some of your failed relationships and to your brokenness. And if you're not careful, allow that to influence how you view God. Because it's what we know. But we're called not to lean on our understanding. Right? I've allowed my worldview to be a lens in which I know and understand God. Rather than allowing God to be a lens in which I know and understand the world. So the question for you to maybe ponder this morning and throughout the week, are you looking at God through the eyes of the world or are you looking at the world through the eyes of God? Let that one sink in for a little bit. Are you looking at the world through the eyes of God? If you have a view of God that is in any way different than who Jesus Christ is revealed to be through his word, then you have a misconstrued view of who God is. And that's not okay. That's not okay. God the Father initiates. God the Son accomplishes. And God the Holy Spirit applies the accomplishments of the Son. Verse 13 and 14 of Ephesians says, And now... You Gentiles have also heard the truth. The good news that God saves you and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. The Holy Spirit applies the work that Christ has done for you, the work that Christ is doing in you, and the work that Christ is doing through you. Signed for by the blood of the Lamb, sealed and delivered by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean 
What does it mean to be sealed? You see, there's this legal transaction that takes place when we are adopted as sons. It is binding. It's legal. It it cannot be undone. Think of today, we have uh, legal documents that are notarized. Right? You have to bring it somewhere and someone takes your ID and they look and they make sure that you are who you say you are and, and they stamp it and they sign it and date it and all these sorts of things to make sure that we know that it is, it is right, it is justified. In the same way the Holy Spirit, in some translations we read it says, he seals us. Think of it like a notary. But in this day, there were no notaries, but what they had was they had these rings, and on the ring was this, is an icon or a crest, and they had this wax, and they would take a piece of papyrus, this legal document, and they would fold it up, and they would pour this wax on it, and then they would seal it. You have been sealed. You have been assured of your salvation. That is what the Holy Spirit does for you. It cannot be broken. It cannot be undone. It cannot be taken away. Once it's notarized, once it's sealed, that's it. It's done. It's done. So God the Father initiates this for you. Christ, God the Son, he accomplishes it for you. But the assurance comes from the Holy Spirit. And oh, how we could talk about the Holy Spirit this morning and we could go on and on about all that he empowers us with. But here's the thing. If you're struggling with that piece, with the assurance this morning, know that you're not alone. I stand up here and I share with you and I'm struggling with it. More than I care to admit. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the object of your faith that saves you. Sometimes we need to be reminded of that, no? It's not about my strength, and thank God it's not. It's not the strength of your faith that saves you. It's the strength of the object of your faith. So are you relying on your own strength? The fact that we're even able to take a step towards Christ is because he first loved us. God the Father initiates, accomplishes, applies. We're called to experience deep communion, deep fellowship, deep relationship with each member of the Trinity. It's one God, three distinct persons eternally. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, each of whom is fully God, and yet there is only one God. And he is alive and well, living amongst us. God was created for relationship. Being created in relationship, uh, in his image, we too created for that. With God, with others. So I want to invite you this morning to join in on that dance. With God and also with others. Join in. Join in. To live a life that's meant to glorify God. The Trinity, one God, three persons. He exists for his glory, but for our joy.